Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Vic Ferrari. Vic Ferrari is a retired NYPD detective who has written four humorous books about the New York City Police Department. In addition to writing books, he is a professional recounter with over a hundred podcast, radio, and television interviews, and a contributor to the syndicated radio program, Sterling on Sunday. Thank you so much for doing this today. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for all of the time you spent keeping New York safe. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your show. Of course. So what inspired you to choose a career in law enforcement? Um, I grew up in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, it was on television all over the place. I, you know, all the television and, and movies about the New York City Police Department. And then in my neighborhood, there was always police cars racing around. And I said, you know, that's I think that's something I want to do. And I like to tell the story when I was 10, my friends and I would sneak into the post office and steal the wanted posters off the wall and go around the neighborhood and conduct manhunt, <laughs> or as much as a 10 year old can conduct a manhunt. And uh, it's it, I knew what I wanted to do early in life. And wow. by 20, I, I took the exam. And by 21, I was in the police academy where I had a wonderful 20 year career. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And how awesome is that to know so early in life what you wanted to do? How was it once you actually started working for the New York City Police Department? I imagine it was really busy. What was it like there? Well, it was different than what I thought. So, okay. you know, it's it's what perception versus reality. I, you know, I was under the impression it was like the movies, you know, we were kicking in doors and chasing people across rooftops and stuff. It was different. It was a lot more structured. There was definitely a lot of rules, a lot of do's and don'ts. Um I, I loved every minute of it. It's funny. We call it the, um, I was just on the phone with a friend of mine the other day. We call it the terrible twos. And it's <laughs> funny, like with rookie cops, at first they're very apprehensive about doing anything because they really don't. Yeah, the police academy gives you the rules and regulations. Then you hit the street and it's like a totally different board game than um, the rules that you read. And then what winds up happening is by about two, about two years in, you know just enough to get you in trouble but you don't know enough to get yourself out of trouble. Wow. So um, you had to be careful. You had to pay attention to who you worked with. Um, you had to keep your ears open and, and your mouth shut to know who's who and what's what. And after a while, you figure it out. It comes fast. To, it's almost like a, a, a rookie quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, he played in college. And then they put him on the field and the pros. And it's like, oh, shit, like things are happening so fast, like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. So it takes a while to really get into the groove. Wow. And when you get started, it, you're I'm assuming you're not paired with a rookie as well. You're paired with someone who can kind of help guide you. Did that help you as well? No, you're paired with a rookie. So early oh, on. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. In my day, um, like in the mid-80s, um, it was a field training unit of about 30 of us. And they would sprinkle us on foot posts across the South Bronx and here's your radio, here's your gun, here's your nightstick, have at it. Here's a bunch wow. of them. And uh, yeah, it was baptism by fire. Occasionally the sergeant would drive by, any questions, everything okay, yeah. And then sometimes they would put two rookies in a car with a sergeant, which that was helpful because now you're in a car with someone who's got wisdom and he's explaining to you, do it this way. Don't, you know, look first before you just go running into something. No, no, you take a report for this. No, you, you don't do that. So 
That was quite helpful. Then after the six months of field training, you go to a precinct. That's where the fun begins because a rookie cop in my time, again, was not treated well by the old timers. Like the old timers looked at us like we were dropped off from outer space. They were hello and goodbye. If you got in a car with them, they really didn't say much to you. And I remember a couple of times the old timers telling me, hey, kid, I'm driving the whole night and don't touch the radio. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's um, and then they warm up to you Mm -hmm. once they realize that you're okay and you can carry your weight. You don't have a big mouth or you're a (laughs) normal. They warm up to you. It's like it's the same as kids in the schoolyard. It really is. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So it sounds like there's like some hazing involved getting started. Oh, the practical jokes. Yeah. Especially early on because you don't know any better. Oh, yeah. And like rookie cops, like if they get assigned to answer in the phone in the precinct, I mean, the calls just don't stop. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the quality to the point where no one's answering the phone because of just the nonsense that just keeps coming in on the phones or sending you on wild goose chases and things. Yeah. Oh, no. There was definitely a hazing period. Oh my gosh. It sounds like you would get really close to whoever you're partnered with, like being in the trenches like that together. Did you have the same partner for a long period of time? No, not really. Um, in a precinct. So when you're in uniform, okay, you're, you're doing a certain shift. So you're doing four to 12 or days or midnight. Um like I was telling you earlier, the old timers don't want to work with the rookies. Mm-hmm. So you're on foot most of the time. And then if a slot opens up for a car, it's usually two rookies or two younger guys will pair together. And it's sometimes, I mean, I know guys that work together, you know, so I've known partnerships with cops that have lasted longer than marriage. I know two guys <laughs> that worked together for over 20 years. I mean, they were that close. They bought houses up the block from each other in upstate New York. Um, but the reality is people, you know, the New York city police department, there's so many, there's 35,000 members. Wow. And there's 77 police stations scattered across the five boroughs. And that's not including specialized units that I worked in later, like auto crime or narcotics or vice. So this constant, it's, it's very transient. People are constantly coming and going. People are getting promoted. So there are times where people work together for years. And then there's other times that I work with people a handful of times. Like I'm never getting in a car with he or she again, because they just rubbed me the wrong way or they weren't tactically sound or yeah. there's just something about them that gave me, you know, a bad vibe. So you would ask to work with somebody else or you would take a foot post. Wow. Oh my gosh. And I can't imagine working that closely and having to rely on someone like that, that you don't feel comfortable with or trust. Like well, you know, so, all right, so if you're working in a busy place where you're answering 30, 40 calls a night and the radio's jumping off the hook and it's, it's you know, you're going on gun runs every 15 minutes and shots fired, um, you if you work with somebody that's, how shall I say, skittish or doesn't want to get involved, and there are cops like that, you know, I, I made it a point, I'm like, okay, well, they're not tactically sound. I would say, okay, I'm not working with he or she again, you know, or if you did get stuck working with them, you knew not to be the first one there. You know what I mean? As yeah. far as you knew, if I had a bail out of the car, this person isn't going to be coming with me. You know what I mean? If I got yeah. into a foot chase. And like, I, I can't imagine. It sounds like there's so much more to the well, work than you actually expect. Right. Well, everybody's used to television and the movies. Someone asked me the other day about like, what's the biggest difference between 
you know, cop TV shows and movies and reality. And I said, there's so many rules. Like you watch these movies and cops are crashing up cars and they're getting into gunfights and then they're going out and having a beer. It doesn't work like that. You get into a car accident, they're pissed. Like, yeah. and if you found, and if you're found at fault, you're not, you're not getting in a radio car for a while. And then they'll send you out to Brooklyn for retraining. It's a whole thing. And if you can't drive and you're constantly getting into accidents, it's almost like they take your license away from you in the police department. Like they don't want to drive and you're going to be inside for a while. Same as if God forbid you get into a shooting. I mean, there's a lengthy process to determine if everything was done correctly. And I mean, I'm talking from the bureaucracy in the NYPD to the district attorney's office. And that takes sometimes weeks or months until you're cleared or justified with a shooting. So it's not like everything's loosey goosey in a big game. You know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's checks and balances. So people don't, you know, cops aren't out of control. Yeah, of course. Um, so did you experience then some cops getting into this and not lasting very long because it was so different? Or do most people make it through and end up? getting accustomed to what it actually is no that's a that's if you're the first i do like five to ten interviews a week and that's the first time and that's a really good question oh, actually you. i'm writing a new book now and there's a chapter in it called and then there were none and it's my a, a guy i met in the police academy who we're friends with to this day i was in a class of 1200 cops when i got hired and I was in, so they break it down into companies in the academy. So it's groups of 30 with three police academy instructors. And my buddy just retired. I, I retired after 20. He retired after 34 years. And he he sent me a list of the people that we were in the academy with. And I remember them. And we went down a, and we made a list of like what happened to everybody. Out of the 27, I think there was like 12 or 13 of us that made it um, to 20 and beyond. Wow. Um, there was a, a large group that left after a couple of years to work for higher paying police departments outside mm -hmm. the city. Um, couple were knuckleheads, they got fired for doing wow. stupid stuff off duty. You had a couple that resigned because quickly they realized, you know what, this isn't for me. You know, it's, yeah. they get out there and it's not what I thought it was. And, you know, I'm too young to be doing this. And no, this isn't right, they resigned. And then, unfortunately, there was a handful that died, um, wow. died of AIDS, one um, multiple sclerosis, a car accident. Wow. It, it was something else. But, um, you know, yeah, it, it's the group doesn't make it to the end most most of the time. My gosh. And if you when you get started and you realize that you don't want to be like on the streets, can you ask to just like stay in the station and do like office work? Yeah, that was my brother. So my younger brother became a cop. Um, my brother's a tough kid. My brother was in the Marines. He graduated from the police academy and he's, you know, he just didn't, I don't, I don't know what it is. I think my brother would have been a really good cop, street cop, if he put his mind to it, because he's very sharp, but he, he moved into an administrative position inside the police station. So in the NYPD, we call people that work inside um, the palace guards. Oh. So, with the, so my brother was a, a property clerk. So when evidence and things are, are vouchered, they go into a property locker. My brother was in charge of cat, um, 
keeping an eye on it. And then after a certain period of time, he had to put it in a van and take it down to the main property clerk's office. And there's so many checks and balances with that because if God forbid anything, and I'm talking from a pen to a vial of crack goes missing and they can't account for it, heads are going to roll. So my brother obviously yeah. was very good at his job, but that wasn't for me. I didn't see myself sitting behind a desk. I, I wanted to become a cop because I wanted to help people and I, I wanted the action. Yeah. And what is it like, like on a crime scene? Like I imagine that it's very private and not a lot of people. But then what I see in the movies is that there's a big crowd of people like doing so much work there. So you're talking about like a homicide? Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of people show up to a homicide. And the first thing they teach you in the academy is if you're the responding cops there, you're the first cops on the scene. And it's obvious the person is deceased. Like you can't help them. Right. Um, you safeguard that crime scene. You start busting out with the tape or if it's an apartment, you're not letting anybody through that door. And uh, a lot of people show up on a crime scene. So say for argument's sake, it's a busy four to 12 and a busy precinct and two people get killed in an apartment or whatever drugs or whatever that everybody starts showing up. Oh, I want to see, can I take a look? And it's like, yeah. no, you can't come in, man, because you don't want people traipsing through the crime scene and touching things or disturbing evidence. So what, what usually happens is the first cops on the scene secure the crime scene, right? Um, supervisor shows up, he starts making notifications. He calls the borough, um, the precinct detectives show up, but they're not really going to touch anything either. You wait. So in New York, in the NYPD, you have the crime scene unit and they're very good at what they do. And they're the ones like what you see on tell what they've made famous on television. Now CSI in the NYPD, it's crime scene unit. And these they're detectives. They're not civilian employees and they're measuring things. They're, you know, swabbing things. Yeah. They're dusting for fingerprints, yada, yada, yada. Um, once they're done, you know, the, taking everything and, and taking testing and whatever. Then the detectives that are going to handle the case come in. I mean, but that they've been outside the whole time watching and asking questions. It's not like they went and got a coffee. Yeah. And then they start looking at things and going through things. And then what they'll do is they'll still tell the daily the voucher things like a bloody knife or whatever with the shell casings or something. That all gets vouched. And, you know, sometimes they'll if there's somebody around they want to talk to, they'll start while, while the main detective, the two detectives that are going to be working on the case. Then you have the other one start doing a canvas. They start walking around. There's always people in the crowd that tell you they didn't see anything, but you get their names anyway. And yeah. you call them back or you show up later when there's not a crowd around because a lot of people don't want to talk in front of the other people because, yeah. you know, the street's got ears. <laughs> um, I've, I've been the first on a couple of homicides. It's wow. wild. Um, you know, it's, um, you're in a room with someone that's just recently deceased. It's, it's an odd feeling. It really is. Mm, I can't imagine. How do you disconnect from that at the end of the day? Like, what do you do like on your downtime to kind of clear oh, well, your brain? I think it takes, I think, I think to be successful or uh, effective in working in law, in law enforcement, you have to be able to compartmentalize things. You cannot take things home. It's bad. You get through it and then you move on. Um, I, I have never had a nightmare about things wow. that I've seen in the nothing. It just 
listen, it bothered me to see it. I, I've seen, you know, people, you know, I, and on a human level, like you're in an apartment with someone that's dead and you're in their house and there's photos of them with their kids or their children or their mother. You know, you say to you, I did. I said, Jesus, you know, I wonder what this person was like. That's such a shame. Like yeah. this person's death is going to impact these people, you know, in the photos. So, yeah. Oh, it definitely bothered me. But it wasn't like something I lost sleep over or I, I went to pieces or, you know, nightmares or anything. No. Wow. It sounds like you just really were like meant for this. Like, and you oh, knew at yeah. such a young age, I read that you uh, busted a car theft ring. Can you tell us a bit about that? Which one? <laughs> I, oh. worked, I, I worked in the auto crime division for, for 10 years. I mean, that's all we did was organize crime with chop shops, exporting stolen cars out, out of the country, changing VIN numbers on stolen vehicles, and then reselling them to people. We used to get search warrants all the time in, in junkyards and, and salvage yards and body shops, or we, we did cases with organized crews. Um, there was a bunch of guys from the Bronx that were uh, stealing high-end cars in the Bronx and Westchester County. We did a joint case with the Westchester District Attorney's Office. And what they had done was they stole a five series BMW. They threw plates on the stolen car that weren't stolen. And then they put a business card over the vehicle identification number in case someone saw it and run the VIN. So yeah. we had them on a wiretap. We knew the car was stolen. So what we did was we got a search warrant for their car. They were using that five series to go up to Westchester in the Bronx and steal different cars. That was the getaway car because the five series is probably going to outrun most police cars and be if they have to bail out of the car, it's not going to come back to anybody and they're all wearing gloves. So what we did was we got a search warrant to install a tracking device and a listening device inside the BMW. Then what we did was once we got, the, we secured the search warrant, I went to BMW and I had a, a, a key cut for that car and wow. what we did was in the middle of the night like we were on the wiretaps when we knew they were in for the night they were done stealing for the evening because they got to sleep too like yeah. 2 in the morning the guy parked the car in front uh a couple of doors down from where he lives parking is tight in new york city even in the bronx so what we did was we got another bmw i you know with a hoodie and i look like a street person went up to the car, jumped in, took off with the car. We took another BMW, another team of guys, kept the parking space, right? So you don't want, if we couldn't find the same parking spot and the guy comes out the next day and his car's across the street, he's like, I didn't park that there. Yeah. You have to be careful with that too. Plus I didn't want to get shot. These guys carry guns. My God. Took the car to a garage a short, a short uh, distance away. Our tech guys took the dashboard out. They hardwired a, a GPS Whoa. and microphones. And it was great because we could monitor them from our laptop. We didn't have to follow as close. You know, that was always the thing, because if they spotted us, they're going to get rid of the car and it's going to be that more difficult to track them where they're going, where they're stealing. So when we took that case down, um, not only were these guys stealing cars, but they were breaking into people's garages and million dollar homes up in Westchester County. And sometimes stripping, I mean, I'm talking mansions, like they were stripping the car in some guy's mansion, like in his four-car garage. Oh, so, my gosh. So in addition to charging them with the thefts because they were breaking into, into houses, they were charged with burglary. So a burglary is considered a violent crime because someone wakes up and you're in the house. It could get ugly really quick. Yeah. Like these guys got something like, oh, God, a couple of them got like 18, 19 years. And one of the thieves... 
got like 10 years, was deported to Jamaica, snuck back into the United States and almost killed a cop in Westchester County just recently. Oh, my um, God. Stealing another car in a car dealership and a Westchester County cop tried, you know, arresting him. And he, I think he tried to kill the cop and they finally caught him. And now he's got he got life. So in addition yeah. to our case, where I think he got 10 years and deported. Now, I think he got life. Oh, my gosh. That's it's, it's so intricate, like everything that you need to do to get these guys. How long are you typically listening and following them? Well, so when you get a search warrant, and that's for anything, right? So a, a listening device, or it's it's not an infinite thing. So when you're on a wiretap, like on someone's phone or a listening device, it, it depends, but usually it's 30 days. So what happens um, is, say we're on a wiretap on an international car theft ring, and it's going, right? And once you start getting close to 30 days, you, you fill out a report, you go back to the judge that signed the search warrant, and you re-up the warrant. You, you say, listen, the warrant's been fruitful. It's provided this, 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 and this. And 99% of the time, the judge will sign off and he'll extend it for another 30 days. So, and then, like I said, that's like a wiretap or listening devices because they don't want the intrusion. Like, if we're, we're up on someone's phone and they're talking about, you know, frying veal cutlets every day <laughs> and cooking recipes, it's obvious either A, they're smarter than we are, or B, we got the wrong guys and it's time to get off this, these people's phones. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when you're listening to them, is it is that what you're you're doing for like the full shift until you catch them? Uh, you're listening to what they're doing. Well, so like I could speak from my office. So if we if if a case was getting big enough for a wiretap, we'd need a wire room. So we'd have to find an apartment somewhere. Well, in the old days, you needed if in the old days, if you were going to get a search warrant on someone's phone, you had to get an apartment or in a school or a basement of a building somewhere within a close proximity to where that phone is tapped. Nowadays, you can monitor a phone in another country on a laptop. Mm. You know, it's just how technology has, has changed things. Um, so so with a case like that, if we're going up on phones, it, it, now it's a big case. So now we're pulling in extra detectives. There'll be detectives specifically uh, assigned to the phones. And they're going around the clock, right? There'll be three shifts. Um, and sometimes you're on multiple phones. Sometimes you're on the guy's house phone. You're on the guy's cell phone. And now he thinks he's slick. He's using his wife's cell phone. So now we're up on the wife's cell phone. So like we did a, a case where cars were getting shipped to, to Shanghai. And oh, oh, God, I can't even imagine. How many phones were we on? Oh, we my three guys' phones. And then we were on four or five. We must have been up on 10, 12 phones on that case. Like wow. we had like a room. It was in a college. We, we we rented out a room in a college. And I mean, it was, I mean, you had to see this place. It was like, it looked like something out of a movie. Wow. Oh my gosh. So I, you had guys that were just strictly monitoring the phones. And then you had the field team. I never wanted to monitor the phones. Was I in the wire room listening sometimes? Yeah. But I, I did not want to sit there and do that all day um, long. You know what I mean? So I was on the field team. Yeah. 
I'm like, that sounds like something I'd want to do. <laughs> Sit there and listen. It sounds like you'd really get to know them. And well, you know what? You should look into um, the federal government. Like the, I know, uh, I know for a fact that the uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration hires civilians. Oh. To monitor to yeah, and if you speak a different language, all the better because you're even more valuable. Because I, I've been in um, the DEA's wire room once. And uh, it was wild. I mean, it was like something out of a movie. It was like this tremendous command center with cubicles. And there was people that spoke any language you could possibly think of monitoring phone tap, international phone taps from Turkey, Mexico. I mean, whatever country you can think of that's in the drug business, they had people there monitoring these calls. That is so cool. This is like a whole new world you just like opened my brain up to. My gosh. I do love that in your books, although you encounter like so many dangerous situations, you're still able to like deliver the stories with sarcasm and wit. Um, Do you recommend that people start with a certain book when reading your books or can you kind of dive right into anyone? Yeah, my books, there's no beginning, middle or end. Like my books, I'm not talented enough to write in chronological order, right? So let's say for argument's sake, you picked up my book. NYPD Lauren Disorder, right? The opening chapter is called Embarrassing Moments. And there's three or four stories in there, embarrassing moments that happened to me. <laughs> and then there might be the next chapter might be crossing over to the dark side. That's about cops that went bad and police corruption. So my books are just chapters filled with short stories of things that happened, interesting criminals, cases I worked on. It's not like beginning, middle, and end of my career. It's just filled with stories of funny things and and interesting things and dark things that happened to me along my way. Yeah. I really love your cover art on your books too. They kind of remind me of like a comic book. I love the way they look. It's funny. The company I use, it's called ebooklaunch.com. They're out of Canada. So for new authors out there that are going to self-publish, They'll put a cover together. I mean, I just told like Grand Theft Auto, I told them I want I want a couple of guys stripping a car. Wow. Stacking the tires next to a stolen car with hoodies on. And they did it. So for 500 bucks, you get the front cover, the back cover, which is important. And people do um, treat um, judge a book by its cover. It's like a bottle of wine. You yeah. go to the store and it's like, oh, that's funny. I'm going to give that a shot. So, and then, you know, you give them your blurb and they put your photo on there. It's 500 bucks for um, a paperback copy and an ebook. I love like it. If you, if you make your book available for ebook on Amazon. Yeah, they look great. And Thank where you. can everyone purchase your books? If you just go to the Amazon book section and type in my name, Vic, V I C Ferrari, like the car. All my books will come up. They're $10, they're paperback and $2.99 ebook download. Awesome. I'll add that link in the description of this episode too. I, I can't wait to dive right in into those. I do like to end the episode playing just a fun game, if that's okay with you. Sure. Okay. So this is uh, just, I just want to ask you if you could debunk these common myths about tickets for us. Yeah, sure. Okay. If an officer makes a mistake on a ticket, the case could be dropped. Yes. Oh, Okay. And that goes for parking tickets as well as moving violations. Wow. Can you get pulled over for hanging an air freshener in your car? What do you mean? Like if it's, obstruction if it's of obstructing. 
if it's obstructing, listen, if it's one of the little tree things, I'm not yeah. going to give you a hard time. Would somebody nitpick? I guess they could. They shouldn't. If you have something ridiculous, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like hanging, it's blocking, obstructing your view. Then, yeah, they can pull you over. <laughs> Good to know. Um, did the NYPD often have donuts at the station? No. No. <laughs> the, the, the whole thing with donuts and cops, and it is a real thing, but the whole thing with donuts and cops is cops, it, it's a stressful job. You're racing around. Cops drink coffee to keep oh, alert yeah. and stay awake. Donut place is anything from your local diner to Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know about Starbucks, but um, they love having cops there, especially in rough neighborhoods, because if the cops are always around, you're not going to have guys hanging out selling drugs there. You're not going to have panhandlers there. No one's going to go into the place and try to rob it when there's a radio car there every 15 minutes. So yeah. they tend to like cops and like having them around. And some cops take advantage of there's coffee, there's donuts. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like I would feel so like, like such a stereotype and it'd make it so awkward just getting a donut like as a cop. Oh my gosh. But I didn't, I didn't start drinking coffee until later in my career. My old partner got me hooked on coffee. I was a tea guy because my dad Ooh. used to drink tea. And he goes, what are you drinking tea for? He goes, try coffee. And I was like, oh, it's disgusting. He goes, you'll get past it. And he's right. <laughs> yeah. And no, it's a it's a game changer. And now are you still hooked on coffee? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I feel like I, I need to switch back to tea because I was the same. I switched from tea to coffee. But now I'm like, okay, I need to switch back to tea and tone things down a little because I'm getting my tolerance is going up too much. I know. I, it, it's so true. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this today and for keeping New York safe for so many years and sharing your stories with us. I mean, just on the little bit that we scratched the surface on today, so interesting. So everyone do not miss out and pick up a copy. I'll put that in the description of the episode, the link to the Amazon. Um, thank you again so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Have a great day. You too.